1: Standing up for women and girls who face sexual harassment and violence isn't easy. And especially when behind closed doors, you're all too familiar with the very real pain and fear it involves. Julie Lalonde is a sexual violence educator and activist. Her recently released memoir is called Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death and Life of Julie S. Lalonde. And she joins us now from Ottawa for more. Bonjour Julie, comment ça va Um, (laughs) It's so nice (laughs) to see you on the show. And I should say um, that for anyone listening or anyone watching, just to give them a heads up, because some of the stuff that we talk about might trigger them. um, I want to play a clip of you from a previous appearance on this program before we start the conversation. Sheldon, could you please roll?
0: It's an interesting conversation for me because I've worked in this field for over 10 years, I have two degrees in gender studies, so I know this on an intimate level, but I've also experienced it personally. And the irony that I was invited last fall to give a talk and a training to all officer cadets at the Royal Military College of Canada on what is consent, what is sexual assault under the law, and what can you do as a bystander if you see something. And the fact that I was sexually harassed, both at the briefings and in having spoken out about it, speaks to the fact that we have a problem. Um,
1: what happened when you went to hold workshops on sexual harassment at the Royal Military College?
0: Well, it was the fall of 2014. And I say that because this was pre-Gomeshi, pre me Too, pre-us having this cultural conversation about consent and sexual violence. And so I went into this institution where I was invited to train all of the officer cadets on sexual violence prevention through bystander intervention. So really, if you see something, here are some things that you can do. And it was clear from the moment I arrived that the institution had really set me up to fail. They had scheduled it on a weekend, which made the cadets really upset. They didn't give them a lot of warning on what it was about, and they just—they didn't even have a microphone for me that worked, so I was expected to just yell at these people for eight hours, and it was very clear that they were antagonistic, they were offended by the very notion that this conversation was happening, and they were unashamed in taking it out on me both in the moment and in the aftermath. But why would they invite you to come there in the first place? I think looking back on it now, having more context, there was a, there were a number of scandals happening at RMC at the time, um, a number of students had taken their lives, there had been a number of sexual assaults on campus, and I think they suspected that there was going to be some in sort of investigation into what the heck was going on at RMC, and so they were trying to get ahead of it. I also think that the professors and the captain who invited me had good intentions. I think she really wanted to see change at RMC. But the system made it clear that this was about checking off a box Mm -hmm. for liability purposes.
1: Well, you end up making headlines. Um, What led to you making
0: headlines after your appearance at RMC? So immediately upon getting back from the presentation, kind of shaken from just the horror of that day, I filed a complaint with the institution. They, in fact, investigated me because the cadets argued that I was the one who was antagonistic that I said all men are rapists, like just these ludicrous claims. I was investigated for about five months by RMC. And then they finally issued an apology and said, no, actually you were in fact the subject of harassment. And right around the time that I received my apology is when the Justice Deschamps report came out, Mm -hmm. which was this massive, um, really scathing report looking at the depths of sexual violence within the Canadian Armed Forces. And so this report comes out, the military denies that it's a problem. And I thought, okay, I have this apology letter I'm going to come forward and, and back up what Deshawn is saying because I experienced it personally. Um, I want to read a quote from your book. And this was
1: uh, around the time that you appeared on the agenda. In your book, you write, I was 30 years old and needing to make peace with the truth that there was no end in sight. I would never escape that day at RMC. i would never escape dating and leaving Xavier. This was my life now. While you were traveling around the province, educating um, other people on sexual harassment and violence, you were carrying a very big secret. Who was Xavier?
0: Xavier was my ex-boyfriend who um, went on to stalk me for over a decade. Uh, We met in high school where we were the best of friends. And then I graduated and planned to move to Ottawa and start my education. And he declared his undying love for me we ended up dating for about two years it was awful and i left him you know i did all of the things that we tell women to do and he went on to stalk me for a number of years and so i really had this parallel life where i was the woman calling out the canadian armed forces on tv and then going home and suffering privately with this very private very humiliating um experience What were the, um, if you think back,
1: and at any point, if you want us to stop, we can stop, because I know this must be difficult to do. Um, When you look back on your relationship with Xavier, what were the first signs that maybe the relationship wasn't a healthy one?
0: I think for me, it was definitely a boiling frog experience. It was a slow erosion of my self-esteem, who I was as a person, chipping away at me, criticizing my dreams, my friends, the way I looked. Um, But more than that, it was also this veering of deep, deep love with obsession. And I quickly realized that, oh, what I thought was just someone being completely and totally in love with me and having that confirmed by everyone around me was actually just that I almost was no longer a person. He was just obsessed with the idea of me. Um, And that's a very dehumanizing experience because, you know, it means that someone is keeping tabs on you 24/7. And this was the early two thousands where, you know, cell phones were fairly new. Texting wasn't really a thing. So literally him calling me incessantly or making sure, okay, she finishes class at this time. She should be home on the bus by this time. If I wasn't, I would come home to where were you, who were you talking to? Um, So it was really the sense that my world was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I only realized it when I looked around and felt extremely alone.
1: You tried to leave uh, a couple of times, um, but um, you ended up, the relationship still um, stayed. And I know in the book you also write about how you struggled with that and how you felt like people were judging you and how you saw yourself as if uh, in a way that you deserved what was going on. And I know you get asked this a lot. Why didn't you leave him?
0: I cared for him deeply and I know that if you are an outsider to conversations of intimate partner violence it's really difficult to wrap your head around and so if that doesn't resonate with you I ask you to at least listen with empathy because I don't believe in the binary of people are all good or are all evil and I saw so much goodness in Xavier. I cared about him deeply and I just thought he was unwell He moved to Ottawa to be with me. He wasn't in school. He didn't have a great job. And so I thought, you know, he's just depressed. He's just is obsessed with me because he has nothing else going on. And maybe if he discovers a passion, he'll like, I just made excuses to believe that he was fundamentally a good person who didn't intend to harm me, but was just unwell. Um, And again, if you're not part of that, it's really difficult to wrap your head around. But that's a reality for so many people, even, you know, children who grew up in abusive homes who rationalize and justify their abusive parents, for example, I think it's, it's easy to scoff at that. But to me, it speaks to the fact that we want to believe that people are good, that we just maybe got to dig a little deeper to find it. And you also tried
1: to get a restraining order against him. What happened?
0: So in Ontario, we have what's called a peace bond process where you can go to a courtroom and request that someone stay away from you, both, you know, literally, but also, you know, whether it's online, make no contact orders, essentially, is how it's defined for a year. Um, And I decided that, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just force him to stay away from me. I tried to kindly ask him to leave me alone. I've furiously asked him to leave me alone, and he doesn't get it. So I'm going to get a piece of paper that legally says, dude, you got to stay away from me. Unfortunately, what I did not realize is that there were a number of barriers to accessing that. So, for example, he was entitled to have a lawyer in the room um, paid for um, by legal aid, but I was not because I was not being accused of anything. So I would have had to find my own lawyer. I was 20, a broke student, like I didn't have money for that. Um, Similarly, I wasn't informed that he would be served at his workplace. Um, which was obviously humiliating for him, so that made him furious, and he took that out on me. And I also didn't realize that he would get several days' notice to appear in court, which means that he had several days to terrorize me and get me to back down. And I wavered, and when I wavered, the people around me got mad at me um, because they were like, this is your chance to get him out of your life, and I just wasn't sure what to do. Finally, I decided, okay, okay, I'm going to go ahead with it, and the day that we were to appear in court... He showed up on my house and said, get in the car, tell them no, or you're not coming home. And so that's what I did. And instead of the panel of justices recognizing, you know, suspicious that she arrived here with him. It's suspicious that he seems very happy-go-lucky and she's not saying a word and has her eyes down. Like, instead of questioning all of those pieces, the panel of justices absolutely ripped into me said i was the reason why women get abused i clearly had lied about it i clearly was not afraid of him because i showed up here with him that my family should be ashamed of me like they just absolutely humiliated me and then i left and then i thought what's the point of accessing this system i have so many advantages and so many privileges in this world and i'm still not being believed so the system is clearly never going to help me and in that moment it was one of the most humiliating experiences of my life, and I'll never forget how all he had to do was state his name. He just had to walk to the front of a room, stand beside me, and state his name. And the legal system did all the work of, you know, absolutely terrorizing me, and he didn't have to do any of that. And that always really stuck with me. Why was that humiliating? Because, I mean, I've never felt so small in all my life. It's, you know, I've never, at that point, I'd never even gotten a parking ticket. I'd never gotten detention. Like, I'd never had any interaction with police. My only knowledge of the inside of a courtroom came from, you know, crushing law and order, like so many other models. (laughs) Like, it was such an intimidating process. And it was a panel of of people. It was a packed courtroom where they would just, people through one after the other, like, you didn't matter. Like I was just so overwhelmed, so scared. And then to show up at the front and basically be pleading, but with my face of like somebody help me and for them to just basically take his side of like, this woman is a drama queen. She's a liar. I just thought, oh my God, nobody is going to protect me.
1: Xavier went from being a person to being something larger than life for you. How did that evolution take place?
0: The nature of stalking is that there's the physical manifestation of that person invading your space, whether it's, you know, in my case, like Xavier physically showing up at my work, my school, my house, but also, and of course online as well, but there's also sort of this insidious way in which they get sort of planted in your head where you're conscious of being watched, even if you are literally not being watched. Um, And it's a form of psychological terror that's really hard to to explain to people but for me it was really that sense that you could have locked me in a closet surrounded by armed guards lights out no windows and you could have told me there is no way this man can see you and I still would act and think and do things with the assumption that he would know about it um, and so you end up policing yourself and um, and then it doesn't even matter whether or not he's watching you or not you're just assuming he is and that puts you on a level of vigilance that literally rewires your brain I mean, when we talk about the neurobiology of trauma, um, you know, I have to do, you know, it like literally impacts your like amygdala and your physical system, um, your neck pains, like all of these things, because you're constantly braced, assuming that the worst is around the corner at all times. Xavier was
1: killed in a car accident uh, that same summer that you appeared on our show. What did it feel like when you found out that he had died?
0: It was by far the most surreal experience of my life. I, it took me a very long time to feel like he really was gone. It was shocking. I mean, he died in an accident. He was young, so it had all the markers of just being shocking, just objectively. But for me, it was this this flooding of all of the emotions, the experiences, the traumas, the triggers, all the stuff that I had ignored for so many years Um, And just told myself, if I don't look at it, I don't have to deal with it. And all of a sudden, I was forced to face it. But at the same time, surrounded by people who thought, oh my god, girl, like you're living your best life now. You're finally free. Oh my god, I'm so happy for you. So it was this weird juxtaposition where everyone around me was so supportive and so kind, but so confused by the fact that I looked and felt worse than I had in years. And people just didn't understand why I seemed to be doing better when it was happening than when it was over. So explain that to me, um, because I'm assuming that if once he died, that
1: maybe your fear and anxiety would have stopped, but that's not what happened.
0: No. So the nature of post-traumatic stress disorder is the post piece, right? It's the, it has, it's after it's happened. And so, you know, I dated this person from the time I was 18 to 20, and then he stalked me from the time I was 20 until shortly after my 30th birthday. So that's my entire adult life that I spent looking over my shoulder, you know, speaking in front of audiences and scanning the room to wonder, is he here? Like that was literally my wiring. And so it was naive of me and I think of others to think that you could just, you know, unswitch that the second that he dies and things are over. What we know about trauma is that the moment you have space to actually address what's going on and to heal, is when all of that stuff comes to front, to the forefront. Um, and so I was forced to face all of the physical and mental, um, yeah, repercussions of trauma. So exhaustion to the point of like being up for three, four hours at a time, I would need to take a nap. Um, I would just cry spontaneously. I was furious for no reason. Um, I, it took everything I had to get out of bed and to feel motivated. And I just couldn't get out of what people thought was a depression, but was really just intense post-traumatic stress disorder. Um,
1: I want to read something that you wrote in the book. You write, I had survived something that was statistically impossible. Stalking kills, domestic violence kills. Ontario's Domestic Violence Death Review Committee has a list of red flags for a woman experiencing domestic violence who is at risk of homicide. I met nearly all the criteria. I should not have survived. Yet, I was here. Countless women weren't. The burden felt unbearable. Why did the burden feel
0: unbearable? It's a very sort of bizarre version of survivor's guilt. So, you know, you're the only person that survives a plane crash and you're grateful, but then you also think, why me and why not the others? And also, now I have... A responsibility to do something with my life because I was spared in a way that others weren't and that's really how I felt and and frankly how I still feel which is I want to be a grateful and I am incredibly grateful but gratitude can also be a burden it's a sense of responsibility it's a sense that I have to scream and yell and tell my story to as many people to get as many people as possible on board because I'm speaking for people who aren't here Mm-hmm. I'm speaking for people who might not be here for long. Um, and as an advocate, I've worked with countless women who were killed, who ended up taking, up taking their own lives as a result of violence that they experienced. And so I don't take my being here lightly, um, and, but I also want to problematize it and, and think through the fact that I feel this overwhelming sense of responsibility to basically give up my life um, to, to end this happening to someone else and that's not fair to myself. Um, and it's an instinct that I have to really challenge, which is I don't want to be a martyr for the women's movement, but I also want to wake up every day and use the privilege I have to try to, you know, save somebody else having to go through what I did. You tried to mourn his,
1: his death. Um, how do people react with how you tried to do that?
0: I couldn't wrap my head around why he didn't feel dead to me. And... Thankfully, my therapist was wonderful at saying this because I didn't have any sort of ritual, or I didn't attend his funeral. I didn't, um, you know, I had no way to create that closure, so it was up to me to create that closure. And so, I decided to throw a party. Um, and my some of my friends absolutely encouraged it, knowing that Dalon loves a good party, <laughs> um, and that it would like lift my spirits to. Celebrate my freedom and celebrate the fact that I am 30 years old and I'm alive and I shouldn't be. And that's worth celebrating. But there are people who wouldn't come. There are people who thought it was morbid. um, And I respected that, but also felt put out because I thought I could ask for so much from the people around me. You know, I suffered for a very long time and I intentionally didn't talk about it because I didn't want to burden them and all I'm asking you to do is come dance to some you know, early 2000s trashy pop music in my house while we eat some snacks, <laughs> and that feels like too much for you, then are you really my friend, you know? And so it was a weird moment for me where I saw the people who showed up, showed up, mm-hmm. and there was also this beautiful moment of people who were like, I don't get it, but this is what you need, so I'm here. <laughs> and that is what I want for all survivors, frankly.
1: 10 years you, after you've left Xavier, your friends and family watch you uh, create this really successful career and you were in a healthy relationship. And they always went back to, Julie is so resilient. Um, but you call this book, uh, Resilience is Futile. Why is that? Well,
0: one, I love a good Star Trek reference, so. <laughs> Same. <I'm, laughs> I'll, I'll that. <laughs> But two, I think it's really important that we problematize our concepts of resilience. We cling to resilience for positive reasons. We want hope. We want to give hope to other people that there's a reason to get up in the morning and there's a reason to fight. Isn't that a good thing, though? Which is good, yes. The problem with resilience and focusing solely on resilience is that when you focus on resilience, you get to ignore the structures that force people to fight so hard in the first place. And so when we focus on resilience it ends up being this really individualized experience where we talk about, you know, we pit one survivor against the other. And I saw that really happen for me where I came forward and told my story about Xavier so shortly after what happened to me at RMC and people could not comprehend how the same woman taking on the Canadian Armed Forces was afraid of an ex-boyfriend. And so they thought either you are lying about what happened to you or it clearly wasn't that bad because you seem to be doing well. And over and over and over again, people were like, "Wow, what happened to you was really horrible." But like, look at you now. Like you're thriving, and you know you wouldn't be thriving if this wouldn't have happened to you. And so we glorify suffering. And I I take it as an insult when people act as though I wouldn't be doing this work if it wasn't for what happened to me. One because that's not true. I started doing this work before I was, um, you know, being stalked by him. But also, I think we deprive. People of their humanity by acting as though you have to suffer to build empathy. And I don't think we should create a world in which we equate suffering with building of character. Like I want to end suffering for everybody always. Um, And so for me, it's a matter of recognizing that my resilience did not save me. My resilience is not why I'm here today. And a lack of resilience is is not the reason why there are so many women and girls who are not here. Um, They fought and they fought hard but the system failed them. And I want us to think about the systems. I want us to tear down the systems instead of constantly holding up individual survivors and saying, look at her, let her be an inspiration. Because it's like, there are factors that were different for her than there were for me. It's not about her being better than me or stronger than me or what have you, right? It's about the system. We've got to tear down the system. You wrote about the double bind of resilience. Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah. So for me, it's the fact that my resilience is applauded by people and people are like, wow, you're so inspiring. But then also there's no space for me to talk about how well I'm doing because they think, but you're doing fine. And, you know, people who've got their lives together are people who, who accomplish all the things you have. And so there's no way you could have accomplished all those things if you weren't someone who was strong and na na na. Nah, nah, instead of recognizing that, you know, I worked really, really hard for so long because I thought I didn't have a long time to live. Like, I literally was like, I got to accomplish as much as I can while I'm still alive. So I was fueled by something that yielded great results, but then was also used to say, oh, but, you know, Julie can handle anything. And we see that so often, right? Like, she's strong. she got strong shoulders. They can handle anything. People have the right to have a breaking point. And that's not because they're not resilient and they're not tough, because we're human beings.
1: I just wanted to quickly touch on what you just said so you thought about the possibility that you wouldn't have uh, very long to live on a daily basis you thought about
0: that? yeah yeah whether it was consciously or subconsciously there was an urgency to every single thing i did in my life during that period because there was a strong sense that i could just hear a talk uh, like a clock ticking at all times um and again i wasn't necessarily conscious of it but i just had this hunger that again people applauded and thought she's so driven she's so ambitious but really it was panic driven. It was, I got to do as much as I can while I'm here. And now that that threat is no longer there, I have to recalibrate and figure out, is Julie LaLone someone who loves to work 80 hours a week? Or is Julie LaLone just too afraid to face the, you know, the dark thoughts in her mind that were too scary to address for so many years. And so if I just stay busy, I don't have to think about my, you know, scary ex-boyfriend, right? That balance is, is really hard to strike. How are you now? I'm really well, thank you. Yeah, I'm really, really well, but I'm well because I did the work and that's why I always try to put a caveat when I talk about it to other survivors or talk about it publicly. I didn't just get well because time passed. I got well because I did the work. I went to therapy and I went to physio and I talked about it and I you know, put my mental health first it takes money and resources and time. Um, and the idea that you just wake up one day and are well is, is not true. But I'm proud that I've done the work and I'm proud to be well. Um, and I'm grateful to be here. Looking back at the Canadian military, almost six years since that fateful day, did things imp- did things improve in that institution? I have not been invited back by the institution, which I find interesting. Um, And my understanding is that they teach some of my content. So that's kind of interesting in that sense. But uh, I think it's changed because the world has changed. I think the improvements that have happened there, one, were not necessarily about motivated about ending sexual violence, but about the fact that their reputation was deeply tarnished by all of the scandals that came out, including, as I said, a number of of students who took their own lives, um, accusations of bullying, like just a terrible culture. So I think they were forced to face some of it, but I also think our culture has changed. Um, you know, an institution in 2014 could absolutely stand up and say, we don't have a problem with sexual violence. In 2020, after everything that we've done, including Me Too and everything, like there's no way a, a Canadian post-secondary institution could stand up and say, oh yeah, we don't have a problem here. And that's because we collectively as a culture changed. I don't think that was a willing change on behalf of the Canadian Armed Forces or RMC, frankly.
1: Julie, thank you so much for your time. I know in the book you write about how difficult it was to write the book, but I know it's going to help so many people, and it's really nice to have you here.
0: Thank you. Thank you so, so much for having me. The
1: Agenda in the Summer with Nam Kiwanuka is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.